ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There could be war in Sweden. That was the stark warning from the country's Minister of Civil Defence last month. Beyond the headlines about Sweden joining NATO, the country has been transforming its one into one preparing for a crisis. Elizabeth Braw is a Swedish global security expert and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and our guest. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Sweden joining NATO signals a major uh, domestic shift in attitudes. Give us a sense of how the fears of war have transformed Sweden's politics. It is uh, an extraordinary turn of events that the NATO application and now the the imminent uh, NATO accession and it, the, 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 this shift really is uh, a shift away from a policy that, has, that Sweden has maintained since World War II. During World War II, Sweden was neutral. And then when the Cold War set in, Sweden remained neutral, opted not to join NATO. Uh, in recent years, it has softened that, that stance uh, when it joined the European Union. It joined uh, the, the EU's uh, defence capability, which is not very strong. But nevertheless, it was a shift away from neutrality to uh, a, a stance where Sweden simply wasn't a member of a military alliance, but now uh, that uh, has shifted too. And it, it really is uh, not just a policy change, but a change in, in mentality. Everybody who grew up in Sweden during the Cold War thinks of Sweden as, as a country that is proudly outside military alliances and uh, uh, equips itself, exercises, it, it trains itself for exactly that position. And uh, now that uh, has come to an end, that that uh, position outside a military alliance and Sweden is joining NATO, albeit still maintaining a strong tradition of, of defence. So how generational is this? How do young people see these issues of national security? I'm so glad you asked that question because it doesn't come up enough. It really is a generational shift. If you talk to people um, who uh, had their formative years during the Cold War, who are maybe 60, 70 years old now, they, in many cases, are very uneasy about uh, applying to, to join NATO and indeed joining NATO. Um, and you can see that especially strongly with the Social Democratic Party, which has uh, governed Sweden for longer than any other party. And uh, uh, remaining outside NATO was one of uh, the Social Democrats' uh, absolute articles of faith. And the, the top uh, personnel in the Social Democratic Party struggled mightily with this decision to submit an application. Then they had no choice. They were in, in, in government when Russia invaded Ukraine, and they had no choice when Finland decided to join NATO. And younger people are uh, a bit more open to the idea of, of joining NATO because they, they don't have this, this memory of, of Sweden's really pretty unique position during the Cold War. It wasn't, uh, it, it, it really was uh, 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 an individual construct. Finland had its, uh, you know, its, its arrangement with the Soviet Union through no, no, um, and no desire of its own, but Sweden built this neutral package completely on its own and uh, bidding farewell to it has proven pretty hard for some people who who, uh, saw it in action during the Cold War. Here in Australia, in the United Kingdom and and also the United States, there have been big problems with recruitment for the Defence Force. How does Sweden, with a population of just over 10 million, staff the armed forces? 
Sweden too has had problems with with recruitment. So during the Cold War and up until 2009, Sweden had military service. It was it was uh, reduced in numbers uh, after the end of the Cold War until it was suspended. And so in the end, uh, only a, a small percentage were selected for service. But then Sweden went uh, uh, over to uh, an all professional military and had the same experience as most countries with no professional military, it was difficult to recruit. So um, a few years ago, it went back to military service, uh, but only selecting a small percentage of, of all 19-year-olds. So it became a, a selective military service, which is a model that Norway already uses. And it works really well because then uh, uh, being uh, serving, being a conscript becomes a an attractive thing because it is selective. It's like being selected for a good university. Um, so it works really well. And also the armed forces don't need every single 19-year-old to serve. So that's the arrangement uh, at the moment. And uh, the, the numbers selected for military service has been increased over the past few years. So, so we, the, the armed forces are, are getting the, the conscripts they need or the soldiers they need. And we should remember that many people who are selected for conscription then choose to go on to a military career because they, they realise they, they quite like it. Mm. France's Emmanuel Macron has been criticised by Germany for suggesting troop deployments to Ukraine shouldn't be ruled out. What do you make of that suggestion? So Emmanuel Macron is... Uh, Europe's uh, thinker-in-chief. He is the political leader who most frequently proposes new ideas. Sometimes they are good, sometimes they are less good, but at least he proposes new ideas. And that's what we need at the moment. Uh, We are not getting anywhere uh, in um, not getting uh, uh, ahead quickly enough in our efforts to, to support Ukraine. Uh, we being the West. And so something has to change. And so uh, there you have Emmanuel Macron proposing that that we should we should send ground troops. It's not going to happen because for that to happen, all NATO member states would have to agree to it. Um, and and uh, you're never going to get uh, unanimity within NATO for such a radical, uh, radical shift. Um, uh, but another interesting proposal that has come up is that a, a few other countries, a couple of other countries have said, well, we'll, we will on our own send troops in a bilateral arrangement uh, with Ukraine. And that, uh, it's a really interesting idea. Um, What other countries have raised that? And would that, is that plausible? Is that something that could happen? I don't think it's plausible, simply because even though they may well be willing to to put their soldiers in harm's way. If Russia then retaliated against that country, uh, that would mean an Article 5 situation for NATO and NATO would have to get involved. So I think uh, fellow NATO member states would would make sure that uh, this idea goes nowhere. And so why do the ideas get raised if they're so implausible? I think there is a sense of desperation about what to do. Ukraine is not making the progress, the hoped for progress, and it's it's not clear where the, the breakthrough can happen in Western policymaking that will allow Ukraine to, to make better progress, faster progress, uh, because we have, we the West have sent uh, a, a range of, um, of different weapons types already. We have sent money. Uh, we have lent political support, and yet it doesn't seem to be enough. So the question is, what is 
the major next step that needs to happen for Ukraine to be able to achieve a significant breakthrough. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Elizabeth Braw is a Swedish security expert, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and the author of Goodbye, Globalisation. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.